All right. Good morning, everybody. We are going to be continuing in our series on foundations today. We're moving out of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, we haven't exhausted it, but we're just moving to some other passages that Jesus hit on that are ma- um, incredibly foundational to the Christian faith and believing and following after Christ. And after the last three weeks of um, some really heavier messages um, on anger and on uh, covetousness and on lust, I was looking for something perhaps a, that didn't hit quite as hard. And so I came across forgiveness, and I thought, that won't be that hard. Uh, I was wrong. Uh, but it is, it doesn't get any more foundational than that. It doesn't get any more foundational than what God has forgiven us and what he has called us to. Because each and every one of us, every person on this earth has been called to be forgiven. The invitation has been cast wide that anybody that would believe on Christ could be saved. But they have to make that choice. They have to make that step. They have to recognize who they are in this world, that they are a sinner in need of a savior, that they need Jesus Christ, our Lord, and they need to accept his free gift of grace to all of us. They need to repent of their sin. That word repent is something we use in church a lot, and it's just a fancy way of saying turning from their ways and turning towards Christ's. They need to seek after him day by day and the sanctification that he provides. And it's not that we'll be perfect. It's not that everything will change in a moment, but we're moving towards Christ and away from who we were. So what we are all initially called to. And through that, he calls us to forgive as well, to reflect his character out to the world. And so I want to read out of Matthew 18 what he really meant by all of this, what the, the weight he wanted to convey to us. And to give it a bit of context, it comes after Matthew 18, 15 through 20, which Jesus talks about reconciliation. When someone sins against you, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to go to your brother. You're supposed to confront them about it, not confront them in anger, but confront them with this idea, we want to be reconciled. We want to restore this relationship. You're supposed to go to one another and say, hey, this offended me. This was my part in this, and I own my part in this, but this is something you did, and I want us to come to terms and be able to walk through this together. And whether they have something they need to repent of or you need to sort out something within the relationship, you go to your brother or sister. It's a universal term here. You go to them. Even when you're the one offended, you still have a responsibility to go to them. God in every situation doesn't give us a way of just not being personally responsible. He says, if they won't listen to you, get some neutral people to come and be a part of the conversation, not people to be form your posse and are all on your side, but people that are going to say, hey, how can we help you to be reconciled? And if you won't listen then, then you come to the, the elders of the church and we will come to that conversation. If they won't even listen then, we have to take some more steps, but... The sermon is not on those steps today. But right after Jesus discusses all this and he presents this to his disciples, there's a question that's asked, a question by Peter. And this is what he says. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, Jesus could have left it at that. He could have left it as just a rule. 
a new regulation, a new command, a new thing to follow. He could have left it at that, but he doesn't. He's actually going to tell us a story, a parable, something that is easier to remember than a rule, something that you can mull over, something you can chew on, something you can carry with you actually through most of your life. You will remember this story, and you'll actually be able to convey it easier to others because it will have a much deeper truth to it. And this is what the story he tells. It says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And this is the, the end of time. This is when we go to the white throne judgment. This is God settling accounts with all of mankind. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now there's gonna be two measurements that we're gonna use today. We're gonna to use talents, we're gonna use denarii. And having no real basis of what those are, that you say 10,000, it's like, well, that sounds like a lot, but I mean, it's not a lot, a lot. And so I wanted to give some context of how much this is. So a denarii is a Roman coin, and it would have been worth one day's wages for a common laborer. One day, this coin. And it takes 6,000 denarii to make a talent. Now, if you have a six-day work week, which they did, it takes right about 20 years to accumulate 6,000 denarii if you never spent one of them. And that makes one talent. And he owed 10,000 talents, which is 200,000 years worth of wages if you never spent a single dime. Now, to really bring into context, let's imagine we're going to use California common, this, the average median income is 60000 a year. Common laborer, that's the average. Whether you're higher, whether you're lower, we're just looking at the average right now. That, over 200,000 years, is $12 billion. Now, the individual that makes $60,000 a year in their lifetime, let's say they work for $40,000 a year, and they never spend any money will have only had $2.4 million pass through their hands. This is $12 billion. Even if we err on the lower side, let's say they only make $48,000 a year, that's still $9.6 billion. It's an amount that's meant to be thrown out there in saying you will never recover this amount. This is a debt beyond compare. Whatever happened here, whatever this guy did to lose this, he's in big big trouble. It's an amount that just cannot be attained by this person. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold, and his wife and his children and all that he had and payment be made. And I considered when I read that, and the reality, I was reading through some commentaries, I don't know about you, but I don't know even, let's say, way back in the when, when there was slavery that was legal, anybody being sold for a value of $12 billion dollars even their whole family, $12 billion. So this isn't going to recover all the money. This isn't going to right the wrong. But there's a punishment due here. It doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't make it right. But there's still a price that will have to be paid. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. This is desperation. There's no hope of this. 
And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. This is about $20,000. If you owe me $20,000, I want my $20,000. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now keep in mind here, it was entirely within his right to do this. He has not committed a wrong. At this time, if someone owed you a debt and the time had come due to pay it, if they didn't have it, you could put them in debtor's prison. There's nothing wrong with what he's done here. It was within his right. And that's important for us to realize. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant, as I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt, which will never happen. You have to consider the first punishment was to sell him into slavery. And slavery has a different context then than the horrificness that we knew of our colonial times. At that point, there would have still been a life they could have had. They would have been someone's servant, but they could have had a family. They could have a measurement of involvement within their community. They could even have made income. It would have been far below where he was at. Clearly, someone had lent him $12 billion at one point. But he still would have had a measure of a life. He still would have been in the kingdom. And in this case, he's now cast into a prison that he will never leave. He now doesn't even get to be a part of the kingdom anymore. And the very last line says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And I'm not going to apologize for Jesus' words there. And it should weigh heavy on each and every one of us. So my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And I think for a lot of us, this is... This will be a convicting message. It'll, it'll sit heavy. It'll be, we'll, there will be some things in our lives we might want to sort after this. But as I was working through this, I felt really that this is a lot harder message for someone who's really suffered atrocities, who's suffered at the hands of someone else in ways that no one should ever have to. And that this is going to be, without, without Jesus, this is basically an impossible thing to ask of somebody be able to forgive the horrific things that people have done. And that's the heart of it. We need Jesus. We need the Holy Spirit to guide us. We need Christ to fill us. We need the love of the Father to imbue us in order to be able to do this. And that's what he's calling us to, to realize who he is and who he is within us and what he has freed us from. And so there's the first thing I want to reference and go through here is Peter's attitude towards this. We can often reflect our attitude towards this. 
At first, we can just be looking for some sort of rule to follow. Rules are comforting. They provide good boundaries. They, they give us a framework to work from. But they can also be cold. They can be shallow. They can be without remorse. They can be without repentance. And they can go without any sort of change in our lives or our hearts. It's just a rule. It's just something you follow. And when we're seeking forgiveness, there was a way that God had originally instituted through the law for us to receive forgiveness of our sins. And it was meant to be an outward action to represent an inward condition. You were meant to bring the sacrifice to the priest, a very specific sacrifice, something you had to give up. Something you were giving unto the Lord. You had no benefit from this anymore. You're saying, Lord, please forgive me. You give the sacrifice and you are forgiven. It's outlined out of Leviticus 4 there. But it required no actual change in your life. It was expected. That was the heart of the law. That was the intent of God, that you would feel this and you would change, but that's not what ended up happening. People began to just go through the motions, the repetition, the rhythm. I've done something wrong. This is what you do. Okay, I'm good now. But it doesn't require any real repentance, any real remorse, any real change of your heart. It's the kind of thing I experience with our little children. The moment you hear a crash or a scream and you hear one of them saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Are they sorry for what the pain they've caused or the damage they've done? Or are they simply worried about the punishment to follow? Is there really going to be a change in behavior, a change in their heart? Is there concern actually for what they've done? God's asking us to be after his heart in all of this, not just to follow the rule, not just to follow the guide, but to be after him and his intent behind all of this. And it can be something we move into, which is just a tradition. If I've, I've done this enough, I've gone, through, I've gone through a road, I've really, I've extended this forgiveness over and over again, but there should be enough. There should be a point where I can cut people off now. They've just sinned against me and sinned against me and sinned against me and sinned against me. There should be enough, right, Lord? Seven times. That's more than enough, right? And I'm going to read from a commentary that actually speaks to this. Peter asked whether forgiving such offenses seven times is sufficient. There was a rabbinic view that one need forgive only three times. If a man commits a transgression, the first, second, and third time he'll be forgiven. But the fourth time, he's not forgiven. Peter more than doubled this quota for forgiveness. Peter has clearly learned something from Jesus. He understands now that retaliation is not the right path for a disciple. Rather, forgiveness is a quality to be prized. But he sees this as something that should be practiced in moderation. Surely forgiving the same person seven times would be enough. There's no conjunction leaking this verse onto the preceding and the asinadatin adds force to the abrupt reply. Unless you really like English, that made no sense. (laughs) Jesus is not concerned with a petty forgiveness that calculates how many offenses can be disregarded before retaliation becomes acceptable. For him, forgiveness is wholehearted and constant. He rejects Peter's seven times with decision. But is the strongest adversative. Far from that, no satisfactory line of conduct for the believer is to be found along the path of calculating numbers of offenses. For Peter's seven times, Jesus substitutes 77 times or 
70 times 7, depending on the translation. Either way, a lot of forgiving is meant. This, of course, is not counseling an essay in arithmetic, so that the 78th offense need not be forgiven. It is a way of saying that for Jesus' followers, forgiveness is to be unlimited. For them, forgiveness is to be a way of life. Bearing in mind what they have been forgiven, they cannot withhold forgiveness from any who sin against them. It's a, it's a heavy command. It's a heavy message. It requires us to seek out God's heart, God's heart for people, God's heart for us, to understand who we are and what we've been forgiven of, to realize the grace we've been given, and that he's called us to extend this towards others as well. This isn't just something that enough is enough. And now, this doesn't say, though, and it's not meaning that you are a doormat, that you live a life without value, that you let everyone just walk over you. And if they say, I'm sorry, everything just goes back to the way it was. No, there's a difference between grace and wisdom, and they have a married spot together, is that we extend grace, but wisdom tells us that if we have a pattern of a problem, that we set up healthy boundaries in the relationship, that it might not go back to the way it was. You attempt to restore what was broken, but it might not be able to go back to the same way it was. I was trying to think of a way we could grasp onto that, and I can think of a very low-level example. And um, Let's say you have a neighbor. We're going to call him Bob. Bob's a nice guy. Bob's a little clumsy. Bob doesn't have a lot of his own tools, and you do. And Bob asks very regularly, hey, can I borrow your chainsaw? Can I borrow your lawnmower? Can I borrow your leaf blower? And somehow, every time Bob borrows a tool, he breaks said tool. And Bob's not handy. Bob doesn't know how to fix the tool. And Bob doesn't have a lot of money. That's why he doesn't have the tool. And he's very sorry. He's genuinely apologetic. He means it. He did not mean to break the tool. But it happens every single time. It would not be wise to continue lending Bob a tool. But it doesn't mean you cut Bob out of your life. You say, Bob, no more. We're done. But the relationship might need some boundaries. It might need some change. It's, hey, Bob, we both know what happens every time I lend you a tool. How about this time I just come and help you do the project? And then I take the tool back home. And then nobody's upset. <laughs> it's a healthy boundary for the relationship. The relationship is maintained, but it did not remain the same as it was. There's a healthy boundary now. And that will become more difficult, and actually more difficult, the closer the relationship is between family members, friends, parents, spouses, and depending on the hurt of the sin that was committed against you. But healthy boundaries are part of God's wisdom. We're still marrying that to the idea that we give grace and forgiveness when people ask it of us. And it's out of a changed heart. And it can only be out of a changed heart. It's not something that we just do begrudgingly. It's not what God's asking for in any of this. Out of Colossians 3, it says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all this, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. 
And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now we could just stop right there. It would have been a nice message. But that's not where Jesus stopped. He didn't stop at just the addressing of the attitude. He actually spends a lot of time trying to give a weight to understand what we've been forgiven of. And I considered this out of Deuteronomy of who God is. Some different ways that he describes himself. Of Deuteronomy 32, it says, See now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy." Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. And considering with this description of God, I think most of us would not consider ourselves an adversary of God. But I would like you to walk with me through this for a moment to realize that any time, anything you've ever done in your life that you knew God's will and you chose to do otherwise, I'm going to do this anyways. You put yourself in opposition to God. Every thought of lust, every rageful moment in the car, every covetousness act, every one of those moments where God says, that's not in my will, and you walked in it anyways, you put yourself in opposition to God. There is no neutral ground. There's no against God, the happy middle place, and for God. There is no happy middle place at the end of things, where there's just this blah, I'm going to blah. I'm not going to heaven, I'm not going to hell, I'm just going to blah. It's not a place. We are for him, or we are against him. God says we will be for him and no other. And if we are for ourselves, we're not even for anyone else. We're just for us. That's still not for God. Every moment in your life, for your entirety of your life, God says it's forgiven. Doesn't matter what it is. Doesn't matter what you've done. The price has been paid and I forgive you, and I accept you, and I love you just as you are. And This is what God has extended to every single one of us. And he wants us to realize the weight of that, the sheer weight of that, how much he loves you, and the grace he's given to you, and asked you to come to him throughout all of it. Out of John 8, 23 through 24, it says, He said to them, You are from below, that's here on this earth, and I am from above. You are of the world, 
and I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. There is nothing you can do to recover the $12 billion debt. No amount of good works, no amount of good things said, no amount of Hail Marys. There is nothing you can do to recover the debt, which is why we are justified by faith and faith alone. It's why it's required that we put our trust in God and God alone, putting our entire faith and hope and life in Him and the gracious gift He's given to us. There is only one way, and it's through Jesus Christ. It's believing Him as Lord and Savior. It's accepting His free gift of grace. And it's available to each and every one of us. And this is the only way. Out of Luke 24, 45 through 47, it says, Then He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. God has made a way. He's made a way for the whole world to be forgiven if they would only come to Him. And we are meant to be His image bearers, to carry out who He is to the whole world. And this was the expectation from the beginning. In Genesis 1, so God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him, male and female, he created them, meant to reflect God on this earth. He says, make no graven image on this earth. Nothing in heaven or earth. Do not try to replicate it. It's already here. You're here. You are God's image on this earth. You are the one meant to reflect him out to the world. What are you meant to reflect? I came across Exodus 34, and I've read this passage many, many times, and it became so clear that this passage is what that parable is based on. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but, though, but who by will no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is our God. And there's a dichotomy here, something you have to realize. How can we have a God who forgives all these sins but is still not clearing the guilty? Well, we look back to the parable. He is willing to, f to forgive your sins. But if you will still declare yourself guilty, if you will not walk in His grace, if you will not walk in your forgiveness, if you will not turn to reflect Him, did you ever turn to Him in the first place? Are you after your God? I will not clear the guilty. That's the weight. That's what we must all understand. It's when we all go before God and ask Him to change our hearts. There's no, there's no tip. There's no trick. There's nothing I can tell you to do to make this happen in your life. You must go before the Lord. You must seek His face. You must ask Him to change your heart, hearts of stone to hearts of flesh to see as he sees, and to be light in this world, to walk in his light, and to bring that light to others. 
Out of 1 John 2, it says, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. We have to consider in a world full of darkness, light is startling. It's abrupt. Just imagine that moment when you were in bed and it was still, let's say it's 5 a.m., the sun hasn't quite all the way come up. It's a delightful part of the morning. It's still in between and someone just turns on the lights. You have to reconsider where you're at. This is not what I was feeling. I'm, what's going on? That's what happens when you abruptly bring light in darkness. It causes people to look around and reconsider, this is where I'm at? This is what I've been doing? And that's a good thing. We need people in wandering darkness to do that, to realize there's a different way to do this. I've been stumbling all over the place. This is so much better to consider their lives. And it's an opportunity because it's unexpected. They don't understand. You're just letting that go? Yeah, I'm just letting it go. I know I probably should be upset and I have every right to be angry, but I'm just letting it go. I'm just forgiving them. I'm just giving this over to the Lord in hopes that they might see his truth and his light and glorify him and turn to him and not, not do this to anyone ever again. Yeah. I'm just letting it go. And it will cause people to think. It'll cause people to reconsider, is there a better way than the way I've been living? And so in, in this, he has called us to action, but not in the action of this more things we're to do. Into action, we are to be his image bearers. We're to imitate God. We're to depend on his guidance. And we need to move forward in our lives. What has happened will always be a part of your story. But God doesn't want it to be your whole story. God wants healing and wholeness for all of his people. He wants us to be able to move forward. He wants us to not have to live in this past and this hurt and the sorrow that has been caused, the injustice that happened to you, and it is unjust. We're not gonna gloss over that. We're not gonna gloss over that it was wrong. But God's calling you to put his faith in him and to lean into him and put your trust in him And for many, there's nothing more I will be able to say than that and to just fully lean on God to give you comfort and give you the grace. At of 1 Corinthians 13, it says, love is patient and love is kind. It does not envy and it does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. When someone comes to us for forgiveness and we extend them that forgiveness, we have, to, we have to let that be in the past now. The relationship might change. There might be new boundaries that are healthier for you too. But it has to remain in the past. We can't keep bringing it up. We can't live in it anymore. 
out of Philippians 3, 13 through 15. It says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of you who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. I'm going to seek after him for this. Seek his guidance, seek his wisdom, seek his grace. Ask him for a changed heart, that you can view people as he views people, with his love and his consideration. Matthew 7, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. Amen. Do you stand with us?